0: Lolis Eli is a journalist, a food writer, an author, and a script writer who lives between the West Coast and the Gulf Coast. The New Orleans native talks with me about writing about food in various genres, about the influence of African Americans on the food of the South, and about his recent project writing with Chef Rodney Scott. The product of that collaboration is Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue out in April 2021. By the way, I want to let you know how much I appreciate your positive emails and encouraging ones as well as comments in our Facebook group. I want to ask you to also rate us and comment on the podcast platform that you use. So now, Lois Eli talks with me on Tip of the Tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. So, we're here today with Lois Eric Eli. Lois is a television and food writer and sometimes both of those things coincide. So, we're talking to him from Los Angeles and we're really excited to have you. Hi, Lois.
1: Hey, Liz, how's it going?
0: Things are going really well. And I'm really excited to talk to you, especially learning that you have a new book coming that's already out. It's only been out about two weeks. And I'm really um, excited to learn that you worked with Rodney Scott. So The book is called Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue, right?
1: Exactly. No. Um, when I was doing my first book on barbecue, Smokestack Lightning, a million years ago, mm-hmm. I ran into a Scott family in South Carolina doing whole hog barbecue on Thursday, which is sort of the tradition there. And I did not know anything about Rodney. They have the same last name, but as far as they know, these two families are not related. Mm-hmm. But fast forward, and I meet Rodney Scott um, at the Big Apple Barbecue Block Party and in conjunction with the Southern Foodways Alliance. And we kind of hit it off. and he was sort of surprised and impressed that somebody knew about the, the peculiar barbecue tradition in his part of the country. So when he got a book contract to do his autobiography, he tapped me, and I'm glad he did.
0: So how long have you been working on the book together?
1: We started about two years ago, and you know publishing is funny. I got a call, I think it was in November. Saying they were hoping to have the deal done by the end of December. <laughs> I think I signed the contract, you know, six—I mean, uh, a year later or something. But we started working on the book sooner than that because you know we knew it was going to happen. Just a matter of getting the all the fine print taken care of. Right. But you know, it's a classic hurry up and wait situation. And there's a place in Birmingham now. I guess in part because his partner Nick pahakas lives in Birmingham and has some restaurants there. I, you know, live between New Orleans and and Los Angeles these days. So we met uh, once in Birmingham, once in Charleston, and once in San Francisco, once in Chicago. So those various through those interviews and a whole lot of talk on the phone, we managed to put together a book. Yeah. Huh.
0: so what can we expect out of the book? How much of it is really biography and how much of it is kind of cookbook or or is it not cookbook at all?
1: Well, probably half and half and I'm not looking at it at the moment counting pages but Rodney has a powerful story and it's in some ways frustrating because he's such a great pit master that obviously that's gonna be the thing that will most interest people in looking at it. But it's also a very powerful father and son story. Rodney's father taught him to barbecue. And we're talking about whole hog barbecue where you burn the wood down to the coals and then shovel the coals under the hog. So we're talking about 12 hours of hard work before you begin actually serving the barbecue. But Rodney's father was a tough taskmaster. And he was, you know, You always hear about those old folks who believe that you need to be working all the time and idle hands, the devil's workshop, all the rest of that. So Rodney is making barbecue earlier than growing tobacco and stuff. That also is all day, everyday kind of work. But after a New York Times article by John T. Edge, Rodney's place started getting a lot of notoriety. And that ultimately led to a kind of breach with his father. And So the aspects of this book that uh, Rodney attempting to understand what happened there. Unfortunately, Rodney's father passed away a couple of months ago and did not see the book, but but the truth is that he and Rodney had not been speaking. and So had he seen the book, I'm not certain that he would have read it or would have paid attention to it. So it's a tragedy in in that sense, but um, a triumph in the sense that Rodney's gone on to such great success. Using the things that his father taught him.
0: That is so sad, though, to lose that connection, especially when you're using the tools that you learned from your father to um, to go on with your with your career. So that's very sad. So, how did you get started with your interest in uh, barbecue when you wrote your other book, Smokestack Lightning?
1: You know i was not especially interested in barbecues always interested in food but my partner on that project frank stewart was a great photographer he grew up in memphis and chicago and so barbecue was always on his mind and we talked about doing a book together he suggested barbecue as a topic and the initial book proposal that we wrote was just some typical sort of stereotypical uninteresting stuff we then did a st- sample chapter, which is when we understood, or I came to understand what barbecue was all about. We went to Memphis and drove around both the city and sort of the surrounding rural area and looked at the way in which barbecue has changed and also existed somewhat side by side with very different traditions, the whole hog barbecue of rural Tennessee with the vinegar sauce and the the shoulder sandwiches and ribs of Memphis and urban Tennessee with the kind of sweet tomato-based sauce. And that was my recognition or my realization that this food tells a story in a way that most other foods don't. And so we went on the road for about six months trying to find that story.
0: And so what what was your final conclusion? What did you really think about it? And I also wanna know how you think barbecue has changed but tell me about the story that you found in your journey.
1: Well, it wasn't so much of an civilization and its expanse and its differences and its sense of itself. Um, You know, this is a very large country and in many ways it shouldn't be one country. Most of the time you you cut up uh, a landmass the size into several countries that is recognition of the extent to which there are these different cultures. So, you know, the the classic thing to say, well, Texas or the Southwest is beef barbecue and Southeast is pork barbecue and so the Midwest around Kansas city and Oklahoma are a bit of both. Well, obviously that's one of the things that's changing, but in many ways, the fact that you have these differences expressed in foods that each of these regions consider iconic to their region. says something about how food identifies people. Similarly, if you look at, um, at barbecue cookbooks, as different waves of immigrants come into the country, you see their influence in these recipes. Like suddenly we got Jamaican jerk chicken, and we might have fish sauce in a barbecue sauce. In fact, I started using fish sauce salt as a seasoning in my own barbecue. Well, that wouldn't have been possible were it not for a lot of Vietnamese people being in this country exerting their influence on our food. Also, Americans got a strange sense of class. I mean. Everybody's all all concerned about the British royal family, and it's like, wait a minute! I thought the whole idea of the revolution was to get away from that foolishness. But there's a simultaneous interest in appearing to be an everyman, to be, be um, to be informal, but also a kind of embrace of uh, formality and royalty and so forth. Well, in barbecue. You get this sense that we're all going to be informal together and eat with our hands. And even though this some rich person has invited you to barbecue at their estate, there's a kind of equalization of the food there. And so these are the kinds of things we wanted to explore while talking about food.
0: So let's kind of segue a little bit. I want to talk to you about your, I don't know what, what the right word for it is, but your exploration of the African and African-American roots in uh, Creole food. Because for a long time you did live, I mean, you're from New Orleans, so you clearly grew up eating Creole food. So talk a little bit about that because you've written quite a few kind of I uh, important articles about that. Well,
1: the shorthand to explain New Orleans culture is that anything that you as an American don't recognize in New Orleans must be French. And of course, that is uh, demonstrably problematic, if for no other reason, the fact that Spain controlled New Orleans for, I think, more time than the French did, even though under the Spanish rule, much of the city, much of the city's business continued to be conducted in the French and much of the city's self-conception was as French. But let's take that as a sort of jumping off point to talk about the extent to which this French assumption is at best overplayed and at worst somewhat fictional. I started looking at the food and you see these crazy things about how uh, gumbo is just bouillabaisse best made in a different place where people couldn't get the ingredients they were used to getting in France. And the jambalaya is just a paella, which is the Spanish influence, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you you pair that sense of what New Orleans is with an observation that Rudy Lombard made in 1978 in his book, Creole Feast. And that is that what you find consistently in any definition of Creole food, what you find consistently in any definition of Creole food is the notion that black people may have been talented cooks, but they didn't contribute in any, any intellectual way. And it's also, all of those references tend to be racist and demeaning and ignorant. One of my favorite um, statements about Creole food, yeah, what is this woman's name, it's Dorothy Dix, talks about, among other things, the hot breads of Virginia as having some influence on Creole food. And so what you get here is this attempt to construct a very white vision of this food in part because everybody acknowledges that it's so great. And either it's great or it has African roots, both are not possible. So a lot of my work was to say, wait a minute, both are not only possible, this is actually the heart of this food. Ain't no no antecedents for gumbo in France. Don't nobody be growing a lot of rice in France, but we got a whole rice strain. In West Africa, that, that is indigenous, that wasn't waiting on trade with Asia to be invented. Okra is an indigenous African plant. Gumbo is based on okra okra soups of West Africa, which is why I insist on okra always being in gumbo, despite the fact that most folks now don't do that. Um, but also what you find is that, well, if black folks are doing all the cooking if the climate in New Orleans is more akin to the climate in West Africa than it is to the climate of Europe, would it not make sense for these folks to have a major influence on this food? And I began to look at it both in terms of my travels to Africa and the kind of things I was tasting in those connections. And also looking at the scholarship that's existed, um, Karen Hess's book, The Carolina Rice Kitchen, makes that connection between West African rice traditions and the Carolinian traditions, and by extension, the Louisiana traditions, since we also grow a lot of rice here. Mm-hmm. And I I guess the, the first time I dealt with this at length was in a, a, a talk at the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium. And I ended that talk by saying, since we have we have all this praise for Louisiana food and praise for how exceptional it is and how it is arguably the greatest or the the most indigenous of American cuisines. What does it do to the black image and the white mind to acknowledge the African roots of this food? And what does it do to the white image and the white mind of what it does to acknowledge the African roots of this food? If we begin with the assumption that white folks disappear and white folks do everything worth doing, all of a sudden we find this great achievement in New Orleans that has its roots in Africa. Then what does it say about this notion of, of sort of white hegemony and culinary accomplishment? So my hope is not so much to say that the French are unimportant or not good cooks. Obviously there's a, a 500 years of history to prove that statement wrong. There's a lot about what the French made possible in New Orleans that would not have been made possible were it not for their great culinary skill and their great interest in culinary skill. But when we talk about the interest in culinary skill, I'm saying a lot of that interest came from the fact that these Africans were making food that the French people said is damn good.
0: I think that the French had a real interest in their food tasting damn good. So I think that that was their big contribution.
1: (laughs) Yeah, in fact, I I gave a talk at the historic New Orleans collection when I was asked about the French contribution. And I think a big part of it, obviously, restaurants and a sense of restaurant culture, but also this notion of the kind of bon vivant lifestyle. Obviously, there are dishes, iconic dishes, on New Orleans menus today. Like trout monnier comes immediately to mind, but then also the remoulade sauce and so forth that are very clearly, very directly, very obviously French. Mm-hmm. And also, if you're cooking in modern New Orleans, you're certainly using French influences. You know what's the what's Marcel Bienvenue's um, book title about? Who's your mom? Are you Catholic? And how you uh, how you make your roux?
0: Yeah. All of
1: these things point to a very serious and significant French influence. My point is. Don't assume it's all French. And in fact, maybe we find that the French contribution is a lot less than was previously thought.
0: Well, I do I do think there's a big difference between restaurant food and, and home cooking. And so I think that, especially if you're talking about home cooking, that the African influence is much, much greater, but then Eventually, there was spillover into the restaurants, and so that makes a
1: difference too. Well, think about the iconic dishes that you're apt to find on the menus of the classic restaurants like Galatois, Arnaud's, Antoine's, etc. uh shrimp, creole, um, gumbo. These are dishes that you are as apt to find on the home menu as you are on the restaurant menu. The right, but if,
0: you, if you look at really early restaurants, those things weren't there. You, you couldn't find yeah, yeah. jambalaya on, a, on a, a restaurant menu or something, or, you right. know, the early ones. I think today, absolutely, yeah, they're there,
1: yeah. Well, it's also interesting that the, the was made that this people who come to New Orleans, at least few restaurants want to eat. So the sort of sense where, you know, that that, uh clip about New Orleans is a thousand restaurants and three recipes or something like that, which which I would dismiss, but you know, still the sense of of cooking the dishes that say who we are. Mm -hmm. These are the dishes that I find both most important and in general, uh, they tend to have African roots.
0: Well, I always say if you keep complaining about everybody serving the same foods in all of the restaurants in New Orleans, it's like complaining about too much pasta in Italy. You know, it's like nobody's saying take pasta off the menu because you serve it at every restaurant. And
1: um,
0: yeah. <laughs> the same idea this is our food, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. But it's also to its sword. I think it- yeah, I think about, for example, Adolfo Garcia, who's a restaurant Rio Mar, as an example. I love that restaurant, mm-hmm. but it wasn't New Orleans food, so you weren't necessarily going to take your um, your out of town visitors to go there because right. mm-hmm. you know they were not doing food that was sort of only New Orleans food. Right. So the restaurant tour, like, how do you balance that? Um,
0: right, and we don't
1: have you know, these days. I think. Um,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, go on. These days, I think so much of what you can find in any city ends up being the same. It's sort of like a chef, either from New Orleans or a chef who travels to New Orleans, says, Well, you know, such and such is a big hit now in Philadelphia, or I'm in love with this kind of cuisine. And so, the extent to which travel and communication is made for a bit less of indigenous food culture in much of the country, though it's still <laughs> strong in New Orleans.
0: Right, right. Right. That's definitely, definitely true, I think. So when you were working on Treme, the television show, um, how did this inform your contributions to the show? I mean, obviously you had more than food contributions, but we're just talking about food.
1: Well, a couple of things I like to say when people give me uh, great credit for any aspect of Cremé. David Simon and Eric Obermeyer came to New Orleans doing more listening and talking. And in fact, a whole lot of people who were hired as consultants or who, who were consulted less formally. And so the first thing was not so much that they hired me as an expert, as they said, well, how can we find some experts? And, which is to say that when I made suggestions, they were listened to, if not always taken. Mm-hmm. The other thing is they hired Anthony Bourdain. So, you know, I've never really worked in a restaurant. So in terms of the ways in which the restaurant tortures are both fun television and real to life,
0: mm-hmm. that was Anthony
1: Bourdain making all that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are little things that I was able to do and. Particularly in the restaurant stuff, and obviously I knew a whole lot more about New Orleans restaurants than, than Tony did. But uh, you know, what, what Dave and Eric realized is that if we're going to talk about New Orleans culture, there's some touchstones we got to hit: Mardi Gras Indians, mm-hmm. traditional architecture, the music, and the food. And so they tried to figure out ways of creating characters who would exemplify these various aspects of the tradition Mm -hmm.
0: and so did you have any discussions with them about sort of everyday food versus restaurant food and people cooking at home or anything like that
1: well you know the deal is that eric has owned a house in new orleans for i don't know 20 or 30 years and david came to new orleans a lot so you know, they had a sense of all of that, but you know, what happened is you, like in creme consistently, there would be, um, there'd be scenes in restaurants or over, over tables eating, mm-hmm. you know, far more than in most shows. And the mm-hmm. point in part was to exemplify what was going on in terms of food in this regard. Um, but at the time we're filming, both of them were living in New Orleans and experiencing these things for themselves. So, obviously, I had uh, a lot of knowledge to draw on in these conversations, mm-hmm. but they had a lot of knowledge to draw on as well. Then, over right. the, the three and a half seasons of the show, obviously, they knew a whole lot by the third and fourth seasons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't the only one in the room that had ideas.
0: And so, when you wrote the Treme
1: cookbook,
0: was that like a, an official cookbook of the show, <laughs> or how did that work out?
1: I never knew the story of that cookbook until Nina Noble, one of the executive producers of the show, wrote her introduction to the book. And uh, from the beginning, Treme released uh, CDs based on the music from the show. Mm-hmm. And HBO was somewhat excited. And so in a, in a meeting about what the next season would be, they asked, well, what else you got? And she said, and the cookbook. And I was the first anyone ever heard of it. And she approached me and she did. You know, I forget what she said. It wasn't like some exhausted thing. It was like, well, why don't you write a Treme cookbook? Um, And the problem was I had to figure out what that would be because we got these fictional characters, these real restaurants, these fictional chefs and these real chefs. And how do you meld all these into a cookbook? And I made a few decisions. One is that the stories in the book would be fictional. At a point, Nina was telling me about, you know, we got all these grandmothers in in all of these stories in these books. I'm saying, yeah, we got grandmothers in here because we are currently filming the show. And I can imagine a character's mother suddenly being introduced. Like, oh, we've never seen Baptiste's mother. Why don't we have her come for the next episode? And then there's the possibility that whatever we did with her in that episode would contradict what was in the book. But I figured, Grandmothers of middle-aged characters are less likely to be found. Therefore, all of these things are what my grandmother taught me, et cetera, et cetera. I also wanted to, um, to be certain that the facts in the book about the history of Creole and Cajun cuisine would be accurate. And there's a lot of history in that book. Um, my conception was that if you were to pick sort of your top 10 Louisiana cookbooks. I wanted to be among those for legitimate reasons, separate and apart from whatever attraction you might've had to the show. Then a friend of mine, Sherry Castle, who's a cookbook author and food tester out of the Carolinas, made a suggestion to me that made all the sense in the world. You know, the traditional way to organize a cookbook is like you organize a menu. So appetizers, entrees, desserts, cocktails, whatever. She said, why don't you organize it by character? And that helped kind of define um, define some of the recipes. So I would take the recipes from the actual scenes in the show. And many of those I would either get from the restaurant that did them. I would get a parallel recipe either that I would create or that some of my friends would create. Um, Sue as a former pastry chef, was very helpful. Also, Jackie Blanchard, who now owns Cotillier Nola, mm-hmm. created a lot of recipes in the so Davies within, uh, like a Davies was then like a sous chef at Le Bernardin in New York was a consultant on the show and created a lot of recipes as well. So there's a mix of home recipes, restaurant recipes from the restaurants we visited and restaurant recipes that our chef character Jeanette de Sartel created. Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of a real sort of knowledge and insight about Louisiana food, this book uh, certainly attempts to be a serious source of information and a serious source of delicious recipes.
0: So, what are you working on now?
1: Funny you mention it right after talking about the Treme TV show because I'm working on a show called Cherish the Day. And it was created by Ava DuVernay for the Oprah Winfrey Network. One season is already aired that I had nothing to do with. But the second season, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the show is about one couple's love story told throughout the season. And in our second uh, season, the main character is a chef from New Orleans. And so I, uh, once again, am being called upon to lend whatever authenticity and knowledge I have to the creation of these stories.
0: And so where does this chef
1: have a restaurant? Yeah, that's the problem. The chef has moved to Atlanta. And so part of the thing is trying to figure out, um, is her coming to sort of a growing appreciation for the food she grew up on. That's sort of one of the subtext that we're dealing with. Mm And it's interesting because I've written a couple of scenes that have, you know, some food porn in them. And I'm hoping that they survive and that we can get some folks actually to create this food porn because, you know, you can't, uh, an actor is not necessarily going to be a great cook. And even if they are a great cook, they may not be able to do some of these things we've created for the restaurant menu.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. So do you find it really different to go from being a journalist to doing more creative writing? I mean, not that being a journalist and writing as a journalist isn't creative, I'm not trying to say that, but where you get to make up certain parts of the story.
1: Um, After being a journalist, my first job in television was working on Treme for a former journalist. David Simon, and our approach to Tremaine was very journalistic. In the course of doing that show, we came to an understanding of how the Levy failures caused the tragedy of August 2005. We came to understanding, or we, we researched all of those things that were part of the show. And David wrote this essay right before the show premiere that was published in the Times, speaking and saying basically. We're trying to get this accurate. Sometimes we have taken creative license, et cetera, et cetera, but, you know, trying to be accurate. And that was in many ways my conception of how to do television. I've often found that the truth is up being more interesting than what you might be able to create. Well, you get to Hollywood and you realize, well, that really is not the conception. Mm -hmm. And uh, you find that most of these shows don't really, you know, they're they're just trying to entertain. I remember on one show, I got the title, The Logic Police, because, like, wait a minute, just don't make no sense. And if you look carefully, you'll see a kind of of a divergence in terms of TV conception. I also worked on another show with Eric Oglemire called Bosch and Michael Connolly, the author of the novels about the LA detective, Eronymus Bosch Mm -hmm. is very meticulous about getting actual getting an understanding of how actual detectives work. Often his work is based on actual cases and he has actual detectives who are consultants to him on the novels. We also had detective or consultants on a TV show. And in Bosch, to whatever extent you can emulate what a detective does over days and weeks and months in mere hours of television, we emulated that process. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So on Bosch, uh you have to comb through all these records to find what you're looking for and on a lot of tv shows some magic computer genius is able to get a hold of your personal bank records through the magic of the internet and it's like yeah that ain't really the way the world works so it's kind of a revelation for me um you know i, I still find it difficult to break the journalist habit and trying to trying to at least infuse some facts into this fiction, but uh-huh. such is life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so anything else that we need to be on the lookout for, especially if we're now running down to the store to, uh, to buy Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue? Anything particular we should hone in on when we're reading it?
1: Um, you know, I, I think it's a good story even apart from the food per se, the idea of um, one, the hard work of him coming up in, in and living a way that we don't tend to live these days mm-hmm. as small farmers in the era when big, big farms are taking over the world. Then learning this craft at his father's knee in essence, then you get the kind of father son tragedy and the ultimate triumph of him not only winning that award, but I think it's a good story in and of itself But there's another aspect of it. Um, You know, in Louisiana, uh, we got, you know, busheries larger than Cajun country where you are talking about slaughtering and butchering a hog. But that whole hog tradition is for the most part not exactly our tradition. Mm -hmm. And so I would urge folks to, if you choose to do whole hog barbecue and use recipe in the book, we worked on it, we tested it, everything should work well. But I am as interested in folks preserving whatever recipes are native to them. Native either because that's what they grew up on or maybe it's native because you know, your, your grandmother's from Sicily and she used to fix this. Well, try to keep those things alive. Try to keep them in our vocabulary and uh, try to use those as a means of connecting people around the table.
0: So thanks so much for being on our show, Lois. It was good to talk to you.
1: Liz, it's a pleasure, and thanks for all your work with the museum and everything else. Good talking to you.
0: Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.